Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. What's up? How's it going? It's good. It's good. I just spent um, a couple of days in southern Ontario. And, you know, I had the chance, because I was at my parents' house, I had the chance to read newspapers, like, from front to back. Ooh. And holy shit, the errors in them, (laughs) the typos, the sloppy editing, the Mm. thinness, the thinness. Mm, The time of fast news, Nora. This is where we are. I know. I know. But you know what? I I came home and opened my local newspaper, Le Soleil, and there's like a double page spread on the Azov Battalion, the the Nazi battalion uh, within the Ukrainian army. Very interesting. Haven't seen. Oh, they 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 let them talk about it. Ama- exactly. <laughs> I mean, I haven't seen any English Canada mainstream outlet uh, even dare to do a feature on this. But this was a feature and explained where they came from and how big they are and all this kind of stuff. Very, very interesting. And then two pages later is a whole feature on free public transit and how it's actually working in a very small community near Quebec City that decided to pull out of the city's public transit network and replace what they had before with their own free buses and people are fucking riding it. And so it's just like, wow. Okay. So this is possible. This is a small daily newspaper. What the fuck English Canada? Local news. That's where it's at. Yeah. And I should also mention that this is a, this is a cooperative that they're owned by the workers. Um, Oh, amazing. That's dope. And have been operating as such uh, since the beginning of the pandemic, not the best time to change your ownership model, but it was the only way to save the newspaper. And so, I mean, chapeau to everybody at Le Soleil and the, uh, and the cooperative uh, that runs all of those daily newspapers in Quebec, because like... It's fucking there. It's good. Okay. Anyway, how are you, Sandy? I am great. I ran my first 10K yesterday and I feel... What? I know. It's weird. I hated running before the pandemic and here we are. Now I'm running 10Ks. So I feel amazing about that. But speaking about the pandemic, I read today that we're about to hit a milestone worldwide. Six million people have died. Wow. Uh, According to a John Hopkins count, which I think we all know that the counts are somewhat unreliable from country to country, um, especially because, uh, as we know, like in Ontario, the counts were wrong. We know that in Saskatchewan, the counts were wrong. You have uh, clearly uh, um, marked how the counts have been wrong in Canada. And those counts, you know, go to official counts that are then used for worldwide counts. And so we can expect that it's much more than that. But six million people are six million. Yes, I'm so glad that you underlined that because I don't know, it seems like um, war has just been like the new like reason to not talk about COVID. It's it's kind of surprising. I mean, it's not but isn't it weird that we can't have more than one news thing? Yes, at the same time. I mean, I feel like that was regular life pre pandemic, <laughs> but now it seems like we're in this place where all we can do is focus on one major news thing to the expense of all of the other things that we should be and absolutely must be paying attention mm-hmm. to. But alas, here we are, 2022 news world, um, where fast news is where it's at, and there are less and less journalists and less money. Um, going less resources going into making journalism what it needs to be in the time for the time that we're at. And, um, you know, it's as though 
there is no pandemic news anymore. Yeah, or you have to get to page six or eight or whatever before you get to it. Um, You know, this is the impact of 3,000 media jobs vanishing in the last uh, two years in Canada. And as someone who has, like, you know, thanks to the work that I've been doing, become an expert on COVID, I just look around and I'm like, guys, you could still hire me. Like, I still fucking know what's going on. (laughs) Anyway, I won't make it about me because that's... um, that's corny to do that, but I just didn't. So I'm sorry, everybody. Um, well, you know what, Nora, I wanted before we get into uh, all of the other things we're going to discuss this episode, because we have a few things that we're probably going to bring to light. I do want to thank people for the feedback we've been getting over the last couple of weeks. Uh, we've gotten a lot of really great feedback. And to be honest, Nora and I were a bit like we were expecting to get uh, some flack for our critical take on the sort of uh, left-wing warmongering that's going on. Um, But we didn't. Many of you and most of you who have reached out um, have thanked us for uh, providing an alternative analysis um, for, for you to understand where to place, where you might place yourself um, in an anti-war context. And I appreciate all of you who've reached out to, to say that that was helpful. It's good to know. Especially thanks to the listener who uh, reminded us that, of course, India and Pakistan are both nuclear powers and they are have been engaged in aggression, almost war. Um, So yes, watching uh, these um, situations unfold around the world is super important. And I really appreciated that, uh, that, uh, that reminder from last week's episode. But we also have a lot of people to thank as well. And so thanks to everybody that shared the podcast, uh, recommended it to their friends, um, and especially the folks in the past week who've changed their donation or donated for the first time. And so that is specifically Sophie, Pam, Sean, Ben, Daniel, Abby, Matthew, Adrian, and Preet. Thank you all so, so much. Yes, thank you. Okay, so we're going to do something that um, we used to do a little bit more on this podcast. We're going to have a bit of a like a, a kind of a discussion about just the way we are on the left in, in some ways. Before we get into that, and we're going to it's going to be surrounding the politics of identity. But before we get into that, uh, it is important that we have some discussion on how the news in Canada um, has been in the last week, um, given the war that is happening in Ukraine and how it maybe benefits Canada. Uh, So, Nora, what do you got? Yes. Well, aside from the fact that I keep seeing Airbnb on a list of aid agencies that Canadians should donate to in major newspapers. What the fuck is that? What in the world (laughs) is going on there? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's that is it's like absolutely stunning that that's this is I mean, late capitalism for you. This is unbelievable that that um, is like topping lists. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Very, very shocking. And, and so reminder, uh, listeners, if you see Airbnb beside Médecins Sans Frontières uh, on a list, um, your newspaper's lying to you because that's fucked up. <laughs> like... Sending money directly to Ukrainians is one thing, but doing it through Airbnb, like, 
have a bit of fucking critical thought. Like the folks who use Airbnb are statistically speaking, not the poorest people. So like, yeah, send your money. You see a, a tweet that says, hey, this is a cool idea. Do this. That's cool if you do that. Should the Toronto Star do a full fucking article about people doing that, including quotes from others saying, well, unlike aid agencies, you know exactly where your money's going with Airbnb. I'm sorry. Unbelievable. But what the fuck? So that's that's not exactly what I wanted to mention, but I like I'm just I can't believe it. I mean, when that's a level of discourse, like sorry, but I'm gonna be critical of fucking everything else your newspaper fucking says if you're trying to tell me that Airbnb is a relief agency. Are you fucking kidding me? But so there are two commodities prices that I think Canadians need to be paying very, very close attention to. And we have Krista Freeland, who's the biggest cheerleader for uh, Canada, uh, training uh, Ukrainian soldiers, now sending, quote unquote, lethal aid um, and doing everything we can to, like, insist that, um, like, we're on the right side of history by, I don't know, sending arms to Ukraine. Now, at the same time as all of this is happening, obviously, there's tremendous economic impacts that are happening uh, to Ukraine and worldwide. Uh, one of those Im impacts that people need to pay very close attention to is the impact of Russian sanctions on the global economy, because Russia has the biggest uh, exports of many things, <laughs> if not the biggest, the second or the third biggest in the world. And sanctioning them in a globalized economy is like punching ourselves in the face. It's really, really interesting to see that like places like the UK and the US have more than $300 billion of Russian oligarch money in their fucking financial institutions. And we're seeing this now because they're being sanctioned. And just to put that into perspective, it's like 10 times more than the entire EU. So like just how close our countries really are in terms of maintaining global capitalism and uh, fucking holding dirty money uh, across borders. I mean, like this will be something that I think over the next couple of days, looking at international reporters on this, I don't think you're going to get much from Canadian reporters, uh, but just the economic impact of those sanctions is really important to watch. But specifically looking at something like wheat. So Canada is the third largest exporter of wheat in the world. The Ukraine is the fifth largest. And uh, obviously that is uh, very difficult, if not impossible, to continue uh, considering that they're being attacked by Russia, which is the first largest exporter of wheat in the world. Um, the United States is number two. And so you've got five countries that are now at war with one another, one country invading the top fifth, first country invading the fifth country, Canada and the United States being all like, oh, like, yo, this is this is really good for our bottom line, actually, because the wheat prices have doubled. I mean, they have just jacked up from an average of about 400, 500 to today on the commodity, global commodity pricing list is 1,348 per unit. Um, and so that's something to keep uh, our eyes on, considering that a, a federal finance minister who's the biggest cheerleader of this war on, under the guise of people are dying. Of course, people are dying, but people always make money off of war. And so watching the, the wheat prices is really important because, Sandy, what happens in poor countries when the price of something like wheat doubles? Oh, that is how we get famines, my friend. Widespread hunger, widespread worse starvation. Um, other wars actually start because of scarcity of food. Yep. And, and you know, things aren't good right now in Canada, the United States. We've had many years of droughts and, and a very a threatened wheat supply. And so, like... 
we are fucking playing with fire. We're playing with people's lives. And it's so fascinating that this is just nowhere. Like, I don't know if you've heard much about this, but I I, I haven't. Um, and so that's something to keep in mind. The second thing to keep in mind is uh, everyone's other favorite uh, export, uh, oil, right? And so oil prices have also shot up. They're the highest that they've been since the crash in the during the pandemic. Um, they're the highest they've been in five years. And then that obviously has a direct benefit for Canadian provinces whose budget anticipates a certain price of oil to do their balance sheet. That's, you know, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Newfoundland, Labrador. And again, we're all at war with one another, destabilizing uh, a, one economy, Ukraine, to like, you know, while Russia's trying to expand its borders, and then Canada's like, we're there with you, and we're going to fight this. But in the mix, all of this continues to rise, and people continue to get more rich, and it will, again, trigger a different global crisis. It's okay, though. I don't know if you listened to the State of the Union address, but Biden asked the oil companies not to increase their prices. Oh, well, that should work. Yeah, you know, just ask them, and all of a sudden, profit motive dissipates. That's what, that's how <laughs> this works. That's how it all works. Mm-hmm. Do you know, I, I've been paying so little attention to what's going on with Biden is that I just have in my mind that his nickname is Blinken Biden, even though I know it's like Sleepy Joe, but it's like Blinken Joe. But I know Blinken is like a guy that isn't Biden, but he looks like a guy who should be called Blinken. Uh, OK, thanks for that. <laughs> <I guess>. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent analysis. <laughs> um, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Anyway, so our minister of finance, who's directly responsible for the balance sheet of a country that is so heavily invested in commodities and oil extraction. And I mean, also the price of gold. I mean, Canada is a top 10 gold producer in the world as well. The price of gold is also very high. We're going to see this to continue. We're going to see this continue um, as uh, as Russia continues to, to bomb Ukraine. Uh, it's all very, very bad. It's all very bad. And people are making money off of this. And pay attention to how little a part of the national conversation this element is. Yeah, but Nora, what else would you have them do? Uh, yeah. Okay. So I ask you this facetiously <laughs> uh, because I'm noticing that a lot of the critique uh, that uh, has been um, articulated has often been to, to those of us who are critical about the war or taking an anti-war um, position. Um, people are have this this sort of knee-jerk, well, what else would you do if it is not sanctions? What else would you do if it is not sending um, uh, weaponry? What else would you do, Nora? What else would you do? And I just, I'm really quite frustrated <laughs> at this line of... Um, knee-jerk support for more mongering, but it also just, I think, um, makes it really clear how lapsed our political imaginations are around, uh, like, anything, just, and how we understand, um, like, geopolitical conflict, and what it is that we are, like, when you are saying, what else would you do, when you are supporting... Mm -hmm. Um, this sort of action that could, as Nori rightfully just said, could lead to famine in places of the in other parts of the world that could lead to um, further strife, uh, further mortality uh, for people. I mean, we've got to do we have to have better political imaginations then. The only answer is send send over some weapons and send over uh, and and uh, um, put implement the harshest sanctions that impact not necessarily the political class, but only 
and primarily um, working class people. Yeah. I mean, look at the number of international students in Canada who've had their bank accounts frozen, right, that just cannot pay for their tuition fees uh, because they're Russian. Um, the way that politicians have, have managed to frame this, and it's partly because there's just no opposition at all to the liberal line. So all three parties are saying basically the same fucking thing. I mean, I haven't really seen what the bloc is saying. So um, and also, actually, let's uh, let's pay attention maybe to the to the Greens. But like when first of all, if someone says, well, what should we do? It's not your fucking job. OK, you're not the fucking foreign policy expert, but there's never it is never risky to be against war. It is always the right position to be against war because there are no global contexts right now where there is a just war that Canada is going to get involved in because Canada is a Western capitalist piece of shit country that's just going to get involved in the wrong side of war. And so being principled in, in an anti-war stance is absolutely critical right now. And don't let people shame you for it. Don't let people get you off balance. Don't let people goad you into telling them what the, what you think, because what the fuck? What do they think? All they're saying is like, yeah, send them weapons. It's like, what happens when you send a destabilized country tons of fucking weapons, when you've also got a rising neo-Nazi community in that, that nation that has already been very fucking violent in the last five years? Oh, I mean, that's going to destabilize the country further. <laughs> It's not it's it's not that difficult. But, you know, if people are looking for like some very quick solutions, I guess, to just like, I don't know, snap back at someone. You know, one of the things that Canadians have been so horrified by is is this uh, separation at the border of racialized Ukrainians from white Ukrainians. And like there's no reason why Canada can be providing logistical support, uh, human resource support to, to help actually manage uh, the outflow of refugees. Um, you know, we are we actually have to be much more uh, we have to scrutinize far more the promise of the Canadian government to just say anybody can come to Canada as a refugee. That 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 has a lot of really interesting and potentially like left wing repercussions on the immigration system. But only if we're demanding certain actions from our governments, we have to really pay a close attention to what's happening there. Um, and then it's like, well, what is Canada doing to broker peace? Oh, right. All we've done is fucking warmongered for the last five years. So we absolutely are not a country that is able to broker peace between between Russia and Ukraine. Like, so, oh, well, OK, so peacekeeping is probably out because we fucked ourselves on that side. And so then the question becomes, well, why do we do that? Right. Don't don't fall into someone's frame being like, well, Sandy, you must have the fucking solution from your couch, not even getting shot at. It's like this trope is just so fucking boring and um, and it's easy and it's liberal. I mean, people basically just w wave a huge liberal flag in your face and you're like, get that fucking flag out of my face, actually. <laughs> mm -hmm. Also, you know, save that energy. Save it. OK, save it for the next time there is some sort of indigenous uprising in Canada. I want to I want to hear that same forceful what else would you do rather than whatever the political line that the the Canadian government is feeding us on how it's unreasonable that people who are um, demanding the existence of uh, of or who are um, who are fighting for the continued existence of their uh, nations um, be more reasonable in a way. Yeah. And now let's also be very clear. The reason why that's the that's the instant knee jerk reaction to people who believe the only solution to peace, the only path to peace is more fucking war, which I mean, <laughs> read some books. <laughs> like, holy fuck. <laughs> but anyway, if you if, if you don't want to read books, like, I mean, just, you know, I don't know, do a Google search or something. But 
the reason why people are so so embedded in this frame is because of the political moment that we're in right now. And this is what we're actually going to be talking about tonight or today or this morning, whenever mm-hmm. you're listening, over dinner, over breakfast, <laughs> on your jog, whatever. Um, we have this the, – the, the, in the Western world – uh, our horizons have been so n- narrowed by neoliberalism that things that normally in other eras were completely obvious and fine things to fight for, I mean, always get demonized for it probably if it's against power, but they have become, they've been rendered impossible. And it's the it's because of neoliberalism, this is the era that we live in. Um, and we don't, you know, we talk about neoliberalism a, a lot, but when this is the, this is the overarching framework of, of um of the western world of western capitalism western capitalist democracy that starts to influence how we respond to things and not just liberals right so liberals will say uh, oh there's no other option you know we've got to we've got to um you know have these knee jerk reactions that have logic that you might understand as schoolyard logic right putin's a bully how do you stop a bully and it's like are you fucking kidding me like it's a bit more complicated than he's a bully but okay um and instead, it boils all these things down into individual calculations that then completely distracts from the market forces and the profit generating forces that are actually driving uh, all of this. I mean, everything. That's 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 how that's how Western capitalist democracy fucking works. But what we don't interrogate enough is the impact that it has had on left wing thought and on constricting our own ability to get out of these kinds of logics that are constantly thrown in our faces by oppositions, by liberals, by, you know, fucking trolls or whatever. Yeah, I think it's important also just to um, set some parameters around what we mean when we say neoliberal, because I, I understand that this word means different things to different people. And I don't really know why it's so complicated. But one thing that I think that we're really going to try to focus on tonight is the way that neoliberalism, the the most important sort of site of um, engagement for any person is as an individual. The most important site of engagement is as an individual. The individual is the most important unit of whatever, of, you know, of production, of, you know, uh, political engagement. It's always as an individual. The neoliberalism refuses to see us as social beings, as people who are involved in communities, as people who necessarily, as we act, as we do anything uh, impact one another necessarily. We always do. But neoliberalism pretends that we do not. And neoliberalism pretends that um, the things that we have that are good, anything that is valuable is as a result of the valuableness of the person, of the individual, how good that individual is, what that individual has done to merit such goodness, such money, such resources, such power. It's because of the individual might of that person, not all of the people that they've exploited in these relationships um, that exist because we are social beings. No, no, it is the individual might of the person. Yeah, and and the reason why we're we're boiled down into these individual units is because we're easier to control that way. We're not going to fight back against massive market deregulation, and it ties directly to your humanity, private property. And so it's not just that you personally are the unit, but it's you personally, the landowner, you personally, the worker, you personally, the father of the family, uh, rather than being a part of a class. And of, but of course, class doesn't disappear. 
uh, class is always there. We're always identifying. When I say class, I mean not just class, but like identifiable groups. You will always be part of an identifiable identifiable group, whether that's a language group or an ethnicity or a community group uh, or where you live or the kind of work you do or whatever. But when we understand ourselves as individuals, then all of a sudden we act out as individuals and become completely powerless to change anything. And this is why it feels so fucking hard right now. And it it doesn't just feel it is literally so hard right now to change anything within government because there's just no ability for collective fucking action. The collective is either uh, absorbed by government, is denigrated, is surveyed, is met with military and police force uh, or... Um, that, you know, we on the left don't see these traps. And then we promote individualized voices or individualized approaches to understanding things or to activism, ad hoc activism, where someone might call a rally and then all of a sudden they are the activist or whatever. Performativity, demanding that someone has all the fucking answers. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And what is so fascinating is that we don't talk about this. We don't talk about the way that neoliberalism has infected the left. Um, and not by the fault of any one person or, or whatever, but it means that we operate in ways that are completely counterproductive to actually stepping outside of these of these very strict roles that we've put, put, been put in and say to ourselves, no, no, we're going to reject that. And when you fucking do, you're like, whoa, actually, there's a lot of horizon beyond where, where the fuck I've been located for the last number of years. Yeah. And so for those of you who've never maybe thought about this before or for whom this is kind of new, I think a really uh, easy, simple illustration of how this works is actually how we've been treated during the pandemic. Like the pandemic is like proof that, you know, we don't exist as individuals like we just 100 percent do not like um you know, we, our actions impact one another. And so we have to kind of collectively plan around being healthy. That's like the idea of public health. We can't just be healthy on one's lonesome because we are reliant on other people to survive as humans. We're just, we're kind of, there's, we're the sort of creature who requires um, uh, support from other people in order to survive. And yet, you know, the government is telling us because they are so neoliberal and are so mired in neoliberal thought that everything is your responsibility. It is your responsibility to get vaccinated. It is your responsibility to get to make sure that you're masked up. It is your responsibility to be as safe as possible, even when the entire society and structures are built so that it is impossible for certain people to do that and survive. Um, and so this, I think, is is the easiest way to see how neoliberal neoliberalism impacts us. But what Nora and I are, are hoping that we can have a conversation about tonight or hoping we can get you folks to start thinking about is how this rampant individualism is really starting to drive so much of what we do and how we do it on the left. I mean... Even just the idea of how we right now in our engagement with one another, so much of which is over the Internet, think about how what we put out on either Twitter or Instagram or whatever is a is a marker of who we are. We are who we are based on what we tell people about ourselves online is a very weird 
neoliberal individualist project that creates us, makes us all brands. And it means that if I'm engaging with left-wing thought online and I am either disparaging an idea or supporting an idea, I'm not just engaging with those ideas as ideas that are worth debating or ideas that are worth discussing. I'm engaging in those ideas as ideas that are building a brand about myself that is telling the world, here I am and this is who I am. And that becomes the most important thing about how we are engaging with one another. And that is super dangerous, I think, because it really starts to control for us how we view what the individual, when an individual is either demanding something, demanding to speak, um, uh, requesting something, how individuals engage, making the individual the most important over the collective will tear down our movements. This kind of logic is what leads directly to the politics of disposability, right? Where someone can say something uh, bad or incorrect and they find themselves on the outs. Well, you know, you can call it canceled. You can call it, um, I don't know, called out or whatever. But, you know, not that this happens as much as like the right wing and liberals claim it happens. But I know that it definitely makes people afraid to, to, to try and say certain things that they're not exactly that they're not exactly sure of. Right. And so this politics of disposability, what it does is it self-centers. It creates this this need to self-censor uh, because if all of a sudden your personal brand takes a hit because you've said something bad or wrong or incorrect or whatever, there's no way to rehabilitate that. Um, and it's funny because this logic then gets applied to um, to this massive global situation that's happening in Ukraine right now, right? So one of the things that I hear very, very often is, well, Ukraine wants weapons. And so, of course, Canada should give them weapons. And for left-wing people, like, in some situations, if some group is saying this is what we need, then there's no ability to say, whoa, well, maybe that's not what we're interested in engaging in. Maybe we'll offer some other things, right? But it becomes this politics of self-declaration of, of this is like what we what we what we say we want or we need. And we're driven by that rather than a, another kind of framework that says, okay, wait, what is actually going on here? What's the role that NATO plays in all of this? What's the role that the Western imperialism plays in all of this? We fucking know the role that Russian imperialism plays in all of this, that we're getting non-fucking stop. And so we can see that very clearly thanks to Western media. But stepping out of all of that and, and, and not allowing ourselves to be pulled into this kind of neoliberal framework with, well, they're asking for this. So this is our only option. It's, it's a really interesting exercise because we're talking about a fucking like two countries. Like we're not talking about two fucking individuals on the playground, right? We're talking about two countries and not just two countries, but two really important countries for different um, geopolitical reasons or global dominance reasons when we're talking about Russia. Um, but, you know, we can also look at this at a more uh, local level where there's no longer a political line, uh, a, a, like a theory that allows us to understand a certain phenomenon, let's say. And instead it hinges on well, 
this is what the community wants. You can't say you can't be against that because that's what the community wants. And, you know, this this is something that happens all the time. Right. And, and a lot of times it comes out. It comes from a very good place where you'd have like the activist being white and the community being not white and the white activist saying, well, this is how it's going to be. And then you stand back and say, but the community doesn't want that. Right. That's where this comes from. But it gets remixed under neoliberalism to just be like completely contextless demands from individuals or from small groups of people that then puts us into a logic that we can never get out of because there's always a reason to not support something, right? There's always a reason. You can always make an argument that, well, actually the gig economy is good because it helps single mothers rent out their their apartments. And it's like, okay, but like that shouldn't be the way it is, but it is the way it is. So what are you going to do? You're going to attack single single mothers who are using Airbnb to rent other apartments. It's like, but it's killing local renting house, like rental stocks. Yeah, but what do you like that one individual like really needs the income because of the of the same forces that you're talking about. So we find ourselves in this impossible to like to to retract ourselves from logic that spins in circles and that actually ends up just burning out all sides who are hopefully operating in good faith in the first place uh and it's really damaging it's it's a really poisonous way to have these kinds of uh, discussions and debates when they uh, require nuance uh they require context they require debate and they require systems level thinking that can then get us out of these kinds of individualized traps. Yeah. And in speaking of individualized traps, like this shit is like such fodder for the right, right? Because it's so easy to, um, to combat a, a political orientation that is based off of this sort of really individualist frame. All you need to do is find a Candace Owens, for those of you who don't know who that is, she's like a super right-wing black figure in the United States. Um, in Canada, um, I think that position is, you know, someone named Jamil Giovanni is trying to be that. Um, you mm-hmm. know, like, you find someone who is black who is, you know, touting the most right-wing line, and then it's like, aha, here's someone from the community. What does the community really want? And, uh, you know, then this this black figure of the community gets to say, well, because I am of the community and um, this is the only uh, unit from which we can understand is this individual who uh, is from this identity. Here is the invalidation of everything that everyone on the left is calling for. And we don't have anything to combat that if we make that the most important plane from which we have argument. It's, it's just, it's, it, it, it is, it's too simple. It's too easy. It doesn't allow us to have the sorts of debates and critical thinking that we need to have in order to build the sort of world that we want to build. And like, I know that this might be complicated. We're, we're really poking some holes into some things that seem quite simple that seem like um, they've been truths on the left for a while. But I want us to maybe consider thinking about it in this way. When we talk about um, a, you know, a community knowing what's best for the community or um, the, you know, someone being from a community or having a particular sort of identity and that being critical to understanding what the community needs... I think we are referring to um, a sort of politics of identity in, which has been developed over years that is meant to say that there is an important, there is a important type of knowledge 
that comes from having a particular kind of experience, an embodied experience, an experience as a woman that is going to give you a certain sort of knowledge that someone who is not a woman will not have. The experience as, as, of a black person is going to give you a certain sort of experience and knowledge as a, of a black person that someone who is not a black person doesn't have. But there are other ways to have knowledge as well. Embodied knowledge is one type. But what we have done is in this sort of um, identity-based, like really um, valuing the, the individual over everyone else, is we have placed almost a hierarchy on the types of knowledges that people can have such that, and, and that is interacting with uh, the fact that we are like all creating our personal brands and how we discuss things, that um, if someone says from a particular community, like, I don't want there to be a counter-protest over, over here because I feel unsafe, or we absolutely need to send arms over to Ukraine because that is what they're calling for. There is, we have placed the value so high on the individual that there is no way that feels anything other than disruptive to have a debate that uses other types of knowledges or challenges that position. And then the, the, the obvious result of that is, again, we get stuck into logics that have very obvious ends. The, the only way that we will get better uh, is by building communities that have debate, that have um, different kinds of experiences in, within them, and that allow for people to kind of move towards something together. And, you know, in that mass of people, there's probably going to be more exclusive groups and less exclusive groups. There might be a, there might be groups that are solely based on one identity that are closed, that allow for that space and discussion debate that doesn't have to like listen to or engage with uh, knowledge that is different or on the outside because they need to have that space. That's that's going to be part of a larger group of, of people come together to create different movements for different demands or different um, for different campaigns. But we are so we're so infected by the by the by by neoliberalism. We're so infected by the way neoliberalism imposes on us this individualized frame that we don't even think about the fact that even engaging online is individualized. That th that going from my mind to my hands to my keyboard to what you to you, I have no idea what your hands to your mind looks like. I can only surmise that with what you've expressed through text. And maybe you're being ironic. Maybe you're a wonderful writer of hyperbole. And I don't actually understand that. And, you know, it's just like it's so funny. Like we just don't think about these things that. We like we're, we're you know, I wrote about this actually years and years ago for uh, for the walrus. We operate through a sieve and we're all falling through individual holes when we're operating online. And you cannot operate like that. It's going to leave us feeling thirsty. It's going to leave us feeling unfulfilled. It's going to leave us feeling uh, perhaps overburdened, depending on, on, on the kind of individual that you are, because maybe people are putting on all of their demands on you to explain things because of who you are, because of your identity, because you must know. It's such poison. 
And so I, I really hope that 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 we can have a conversation about what does the neoliberal transformation of left wing thought, left wing philosophy, left wing action, what does this look like? And then once we identify what it looks like, how do we fight against it? What are the, the, the structures or the strategies or the approaches that we can take that helps to undo this politic of disposability, of, uh, of call-outs, of, of all the stuff that people might engage in, but then privately are like, fuck, this is really toxic shit. And I actually don't like that I'm engaging with it, but I find that there's not, I'm either pulled into it or there's no other option, or this is just unfortunately the way that I express myself because we are all in the same, in the same world. Yeah. As you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, this idea of, you know, we express from my mind to my fingers, to my keyboard, to whatever, like that, that's such an individual, like hyper individual way to interact with other people. But it, you know, it, it goes even further than that. It's, it's further in that it doesn't even matter what you say back to me. Like it, who cares whether or not I understand whether you're ironic or not. All that matters is what I take from it. And what I then tell everybody else, you told me, <laughs> it doesn't, right. it doesn't, you know, like the, the individualism is so, it's so hyper individual that it doesn't even matter um, what is happening in a conversation, in a dialogue, in a debate, it doesn't matter. And so the idea of like the, the kind of call out or the, the sort of, well, this person is this and this person is that it's so, it makes me really sad. It makes me really sad because it makes me think that we have come to a place where we no longer value one another and the, the fact of us coming together to fight for something more, which is, I thought, you know, like was uh, one of the cruxes of being, you know, of left-wing politics. It should be, is that we literally can't dispose of one another. Like that's part of <laughs> the work is that we cannot dispose of one another. Like, Nora, you and I have worked with some pretty reprehensible people over the years. <laughs> yeah. Some people that uh, both privately and publicly and to their face, we've said, you know, you are a terrible person. <laughs> and yet still, even through that, could not dispose of them because we were in community together, in building something with one another where we had to have the debates that we had to have, and we had to continue to work through um, even when, you know, th there were disagreements. And we are working in such individualized ways that simple disagreements are sometimes now articulated as harms. Disagreements articulated as harms that then become the impetus for my individual experience here um, denotes that your individual um, articulation over there means that we can discard one another because of a disagreement, which is articulated as a harm. And I think that that is also a really dangerous place for us to go. Now, I know we're kind of being a little heady right now and a little cerebral with what we're saying, but I hope that what we're saying is coming across. We just have to be better 
at continuing at committing to be in dialogue with one another as collectives and not as individuals and that in in that understanding that we kind of need all of us like every one of us who has some sort of interest in left-wing politics we kind of need to mobilize where we can together when we can come together we need to be able to come together because there are too few of us yeah (laughs) and the way that power works in the system that we live in right now our number one source of power is in our collectivity. So when we forget that and we cast that aside in favor of creating these like um, perfect individuals on the left, you know, the, the perfect person who's calling for the perfect things and is speaking at the perfect times and is, you know, is faultless, faultless individual, perfect individual. I mean, gosh, we've just we've lost because we've prioritized who we are individually over who we can be collectively. Yeah, now's the era for giving zero fucks about certainly what anyone any liberal says to you (laughs) says about you, certainly what anyone on the right says about you. Uh, And even on the left, I mean, listen to criticism, obviously, but uh, operate in good faith and apologize when you need to apologize, but also don't give too many fucks. 